The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue. We are grateful for your presence with us this morning. We greet those also listening live over radio signals at WBUR 90.9 FM throughout New England and over the internet at WBUR.org around the globe. Particularly, we bear greetings to new grandparents this week, perhaps grandparents listening from Silver Spring, Maryland. We bear special greetings this week also from Washington, D.C., the Reverend Dean Snyder, uh, here to preach the second Sunday uh, of his installment of our National Summer Preacher Series. Uh, we find it incumbent upon us in this academic context to point out that Reverend Snyder's first proper name is Dean. It is not an academic title, as for so many here in the university. So if you call him Dean Snyder, Reverend Snyder may look at you a little funny. Our, our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, uh, bears his greetings to all as he is away in these summer months. We do look forward to his return next Sunday morning. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive thankfully the fruits of this redeeming work 
and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we turn this morning to our Kyrie and time of confession, we are reminded with our brothers and sisters in Egypt, both Muslim and Christian, who have a particular purchase on the fractured and broken state of our world, that we all participate in fractured and broken states in our lives, and so we make confession before God as the choir sings our traditional Kyrie. Dearly beloved, we are reminded that if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from 1 John 2, 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young people, because you have conquered the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young people, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world, for all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world and the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God will live forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join me in reading Psalm 46 responsively with the antiphon. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city which shall not be moved. God will help it at the dawn of the day. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. God's voice resounds, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth who makes war cease to the end of the earth, breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. rise as we join in the singing of the Gloria and the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Glory to you, O Lord. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Two others died on crosses with Jesus that Friday, according to Luke. The old translations of the Bible mistranslated the Greek word used to describe them, so Christian legend came to call them thieves. Risa Olson's book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ, is now number one on everybody's bestseller list and has become delightfully controversial. Aslan is right that the two men who died on crosses with Jesus were not thieves, but probably zealots and revolutionaries. Today we might call them, this is my word, not Aslan's, 
Today we might call them insurgents. Insurgents are patriots who fight against occupying forces that are much more powerful than they are. They fight not to win battles, which would be a lost cause, but because they hate oppression and they hate the oppressors, and they hate those who collaborate with oppressors. Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire so militarily advanced that Israel could never defeat them in battle, but lost cause or not, the most radical zealots fought and maimed, wounded and killed whenever and wherever they could. The zealots hated the Romans. The Romans hated the zealots. The Romans reserved for zealots the worst, most painful, most humiliating form of punishment, execution by crucifixion. As Reza Aslan argues, the other two dying on crosses near Jesus were most likely zealots. Aslan emphasizes their passion for social justice. He does not emphasize that they probably would have had the blood of Romans and tax collectors and Israelite collaborators on their hands. In Luke's story of the conversation between the zealots and Jesus, the crowd who'd come to watch the crucifixions is mocking Jesus, and one of the zealots joins them. He mocks Jesus. The other zealot sides with Jesus. He says to the first zealot, you and I are guilty of what we are accused of doing and we deserve our punishment, but Jesus has done nothing wrong and does not deserve to die like this. This second zealot says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Part of the reason Luke tells this story is because he wants to convince us that even though he died the death of a zealot, Jesus was not one. There was no blood on Jesus' hands. Instead, his blood is on our hands, all we who crucified him or stood by and did nothing, do nothing. This is Luke's point. So the controversy that Risa Aslan raises in his book is not a new one. Luke was already trying to address it in his gospel written only a generation or so after Jesus' death. What particularly interests me this morning is Jesus' response in Luke's story to this second zealot who asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Jesus answers him, amen, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. There's a sermon I've been trying to preach for a number of years now. It is a sermon a member of my church back in Washington, D.C. asked me to preach. She was a fascinating person, as so many of those who attend my church are. As a young woman, she had been recruited to Washington when the federal government was growing rapidly, and every office there was looking for young, intelligent, single women to move to Washington to be secretaries because they needed someone to, uh, well, to get the work done. She had grown up in a small rural town in the South studied at a local small Christian college for a year or two. She was very bright. Someone in Washington knew someone at her college. She wanted to see the world. She ended up 
in Washington, D.C., organizing the calendar and life of someone important in the government. She never married, but over the years, she developed a wonderful community of friends who became her family. People from the building of small apartments she lived in, people from the little pub where she spent Friday nights. A gay friend from the pub first brought her to our church. I mention this only because it amused her so much that a gay man was the one to bring her back to church. She once told me her friends were all the people the church she grew up in had told her never to associate with. People of different races and nationalities, gay people, divorced people, people who were a bit cynical and who liked to tell slightly risque jokes, people who would have been lonely without each other. One day, the friend she attended church with called to tell me she had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. She had only months to live. I called to ask if I could visit. She said she didn't really need me to visit. She had friends to talk to in her living room. But if I wanted to do something for her, she said, this is what I could do. I could preach a sermon on a certain topic. The topic she wanted me to preach a sermon about was what happens after we die. It was a request that left me fairly speechless. This is not what we had focused on in the School of Theology next door to this chapel when I attended it. What happens after we die? She has long since died, and I trust knows more about the answer to his quest, her question than I do. But I have been trying to preach her sermon ever since in one form or another, based on one text or another, without much success. But I keep trying, especially when I get a new audience to try to talk about it with, like you. For a religion based on the story of a resurrection, the Bible really has relatively little to say about what happens after we die, and what it says is not very systematic, nor frankly, is it very consistent. The Gospel of John quotes Jesus saying his father's house has many dwelling places and he will go to prepare a place for us. His disciples get confused during this conversation. And as so often happens with the Gospel of John, when I try to study the passage too literally, I get confused too. Already at the time the Bible was being written, people, even Christians, were having a hard time with the idea of resurrection. What is it exactly that is resurrected? The Apostle Paul tries to explain it. The dead will be raised imperishable. The perishable must put on imperishability, and the mortal must put on immortality. Unpack that. Paul finally admits that for now we see only through a mirror dimly. For now we know only in part in the book of Revelation, which you think might be the most helpful part of the Bible on this topic, we don't even go to heaven, so far as I can tell. Heaven comes down to earth. 
The writer of the first epistle of John is the most honest and vulnerable and agnostic. What we will be has not yet been revealed, he writes. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him. Other religions seem much more knowledgeable and concrete. Tibetan Buddhism describes exactly what happens to us during the first 49 days after we die. Vedic Hinduism's Garunda Purana describes what happens after we die in perfect detail, including the dark tunnel we pass through as our soul moves from our old body to our new body, the direction it says we travel in the tunnel is due south. The Quran says we will enter heaven through one of eight doors, depending on which of eight religious practices we prioritize during our life on earth. Our Bible, in contrast, seems to give us only hints and poetry. Which is why, as I decided to try this sermon one more time, I came to focus on Jesus' words to the zealot on the cross. Jesus says to him, Amen, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise appears only three times in the New Testament. It is a word scholars tell us that has a different connotation than heaven. Heaven is a reference to fulfillment, completion, culmination, the end. Paradise is a reference backwards, back to the garden, back to Eden, back before history began, before Cain murdered Abel, before Hamar raped Dinah, before Shem made Canaan his slave, back before we learned prejudice and racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia and greed and dominion and the fear that if I share with you, there may not be enough left over for me. Jesus says to the zealot whose life is defined by oppression and hate, but who reaches out in kindness to him as they die on crosses together, Jesus says, today you will be with me where and when the world has not yet turned into what it has become. He says, we are going back to before we were wounded and before we wounded others, until the whole world had become a place of woundedness and violence. Today, we will be together back in the garden. I don't know, really. I just don't know. I don't know if we're going forward toward heaven or backwards toward Eden, but there is something I find hopeful about the idea of being with Jesus in paradise. There is something hopeful about the undoing of all we have done to hurt each other and to hurt the earth. There is something hopeful about the undoing of all of the pain 
that I have caused in my life all of the good I've left undone. First John says, the world and its desires are passing away. But those who do the will of God live forever. The world and its desires are passing away. Fred Beekner says people don't pass away. It is the world that is passing away. The world, not that God created, but the world that we have created. Hate is passing away. Greed is passing away. Ignorance is passing away. Prejudice is passing away. The world and its desires are passing away, but you and I, the you and I created by God in the garden to be companions to one another, the you and I before we began to murder and rape and enslave one another, the real you, the true you, will live forever. If I could preach this sermon to the woman who asked me to preach it, I would tell her that the hate and fear the church she grew up in tried to teach her is passing away. But the love she discovered with her gay and divorced and irreverent neighbors and her friends at the pub, this love she opened her heart to will never pass away. Carol Zaleski, in a lecture at Harvard, reported that six years before his death, America's greatest philosopher, William James, received a questionnaire from one of his former students. One of the questions was, do you believe in personal immortality? William James answered, never keenly, but more strongly as I grow older. The next question was, if so, why? James answered, because I am just getting fit to live. The world damages us so. The world damages us. Not the world God created, the world we have created. It teaches us to hate those who hate us until we all hate each other. It teaches us to be suspicious of those who seem different from us until we are suspicious of everybody. It teaches us not to trust until we all distrust each other. But that world and its desires are passing away. Even the part of that world that lives inside of me and inside of you is passing away. Even the part of the broken, messed up world that lives inside of me and inside of you is passing away. As we make our way back to the garden or forward to heaven, whichever it is, I so want 
to be like the zealot on the cross next to Jesus, who on the day he died was finally ready to live. It is my prayer for myself and my prayer for you. Please be seated. As we are called to prayer through the singing of Lead Me, Lord, we invite you to pray in the way you are so moved to best support our prayers this morning. Stand or kneel at the altar rail, raise your hands in place, respond in the language dear to your heart as you feel moved by the Spirit this morning. I will set the intention and we'll end with, in your grace, if you would please respond, hear our prayer. Dearly beloved, let us pray together. Lead me, Lord. Lead me, Lord. 
You who are one, you who are three, one God in holy community. We who are created in your image are glad and grateful for your presence with us as source of all life and Christ and spirit, for your encouragement by your gifts and fruits in our lives, for your empowerment to grow in love and to choose the good. In your grace of invitation and inclusion, we pray. For ourselves, as individuals, and for the communities of which we are a part, for our particular ministries in the world, for our ministry in and through Marsh Chapel and the Office of Religious Life, for the work of all the Church. In your grace, hear our prayer. With and for our cousins and neighbors in faith traditions not our own, and with and for all people of goodwill, for the works of blessing, courage, and peace in and through us all for the life of the world. In your grace, hear our prayer. For the nations and peoples of the world, for the leaders amongst them, and for the ways of peace amongst us all. In your grace, hear our prayer. For creation, for our earth and air and water, for our companion animals, birds, insects, and plants. In your grace, hear our prayer. For those who disagree with us and those who wish us harm, and for all those who we ourselves have injured or offended, in your grace, hear our prayer. For those individuals and communities who face particular challenges of mind, body, spirit, in your grace, hear our prayer. For those who have died, for their family and friends, for your will fulfilled in them, and for our sharing with all your saints in the life to come, in your grace, hear our prayer. For the celebrations, milestones, and joys of our human life, in your grace, hear our prayer. In all these things we pray in trust, as you pray with us in your compassion too deep for words. Amen. And continuing in our prayer together, as our Lord Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you once again here to the Nave of Marsh Chapel and hope you will take a moment to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and to pass the book along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We are grateful to Reverend Snyder for concluding our National Summer Preacher Series for this summer and look forward to Dean Hill's return next week. We hope you will also mark your calendars for Sunday, September 1st, which will be our matriculation Sunday here at Marsh Chapel when we will welcome all the new students entering Boston University in this fall term. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we hope you will meditate on Johannes Brahms' setting, uh, motet setting, Geistlichlied, and uh, now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Holy One, you have poured your blessing upon us and we are blessed. Make us blessings of your presence. You have poured your loving upon us and we are loved. Make us loving in the giving of our compassion. You have poured your gifts upon us and we are the receivers. Holy One, make us generous with our resources. Amen. I want to express my appreciation again to Dean uh, Bob Hill for the invitation to return to Marsh Chapel and uh, to Dean Moore of the School of Theology and all of the family and friends who have provided uh, such wonderful hospitality uh, to Jane and me uh, during our time here. This is all we need to know. The saints who have died have not passed away. When you and I die, we will die, but we will not pass away. It is the world and its desires that are passing away. We will be born anew from the womb of God as fresh and new as Brother Larry's baby. Go in peace to trust God and to love your neighbor. God, your creator, your savior, the spirit go with you. Amen. <laughs>